Hi listeners, today I'm speaking with the lovely Christopher Cam. He is the development manager for scripted programming at NBC Universal. He played a key part in the development in Hannah, the Amazon series, and the BBC series, The Capture. He has facilitated the partnership between Soho Theatre and NBC with the key aim of developing talent. I approached Chris on LinkedIn because he had an interesting career progression in TV and film, and he's passionate about finding and developing and nurturing talent. So welcome, Chris, if you could say hi to the listener. Hi, everybody. We're going to go right into it. It's very important that we understand why storytellers are important to the industry and discovering and cultivating great talent. Um, again, Chris echoes everything that we believe in and the company ethos. So it's really, really exciting to have him here. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> so Chris, why do you like storytellers? Storytellers in general is just, for me, the most effective way to communicate and to get any message across. You. You learn things at school and, you know, it's a textbook, but it, things that stay in my head are telling a story. I'll remember someone if they come up to me and tell me a bit about their life. They'll tell me something that connects me to them. If someone comes up to me and just splurts out five random facts, I will forget four of the five. Um, but if you can tell me a story of where you grew up, why something means something to you, that will make me rem firstly remember you, but I'll also learn a bit about you. And for me, storytelling comes from like the earliest form of like you know hieroglyphics and cavemen and such. But it it's it might be all cliched, but you know I have a terrible memory. Um, and by affiliate creating a story around things, it's how for me it's connectivity. It's how I connect to people and how I will remember and care about things and okay. Well, I mean when you were. Uh, younger, were you a daydreamer yourself? I I feel when I was younger, I was I was that kid with both OCD and ADHD, but never diagnosed with either. I had a lot of energy, and um, I I always wanted uh, I was always wanted to do something about you know escapism. Um, I very much sat in front of the TV for hours watching you know, my favorite shows, Aladdin. You know, was I was obsessed with Aladdin for some reason uh, growing up, um, and you know, as a little kid, I would always have my parents. I was very fortunate. My parents bought me a lot of toys, and I would always just hide in my room and tell these imaginative, creative stories about all these with my toys, like in Toy Story. Um, you know, and as I grew older, uh, you know, English for me was something I could really. Once I got a good sense of grasp around, like just. Cohesive sentences, not as I'm doing it right now, um, but like better structure of sentences. I very much discovered that, yeah, I, I wanted to, you know, escape into these stories and immerse myself into yeah. them. Yeah, and you know, when you said you were daydreaming and playing with your toys, like Toy Story, um, was there a certain scenario that you always brought up, or was it just fun to put on the voice and? Well, um, uh, I, I can't remember, to be honest. Um, you know, I feel, I didn't have a favorite toy or anything. Um, I feel each one of my toys had a persona. Um, they, all ha they all had to have powers. They all had to be special in some way. Or else, like, you know, I didn't want to do friends, to, you know, uh, toys or anything. They all had to be, like, super in some way. So, and have conflict. And have con conflict, drama, drama, uh, humor, you know, all those, uh, you 
know, who knew a seven-year-old had that much, <laughs> you know, narrative drive. Um, but yeah, no, so uh, I, I guess that's kind of like, oh, I'm a genre kid, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer is Amazing. my, you know, the reason why I'm in TV, I always say. Um, and X-Men, the animated series growing up for me was iconic and to this day, I think, ages incredibly well. Um, and I, I very much, I actually honestly think that's why I gave all my little toys powers because X-Men came out, I think, 91 or something when I was like five years old. Um, and yeah, I very much, I, I think I just wanted to be an X-Men, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. So, uh, you know, I'm assuming you went to university for film. Huh? I did not, no. Um, so I graduated high school and um, so we are first generation uh, Chinese Malaysian. We moved to Australia when I was two years old. And um, I, my parents are incredibly supportive, I love them to bits. Um, but when I said I wanted to do a film and TV degree, they couldn't really understand it. They couldn't really grasp it. Um, my cousins are crazy smart. My, my dad has a PhD. My mom's whole family are incredibly smart. So they're all like, doctors, lawyers, finance people, people who have real jobs. <laughs> so when I said I wanted to, you know, be a film TV, they were actually quite worried, and they didn't. Um, they were, uh, because just they didn't know anyone who was in that industry. And also, not even that, but like, they'd never seen an Asian person in that industry, so why would I be the first? Yeah. Not that I, like, not that I wasn't special or anything, but it's scary for your parents to think that, you know, why do you want to put yourself through this hard life, yeah. you know? So I met them in the middle and I did a business degree with an arts major. So I actually have a bachelor of business majoring in marketing, and I also have a major in media. Um, so yeah, I, I did that and I got my bachelor's and I vividly remember my mom saying, now you've got your bachelor's, maybe you should do an MBA. And I just turned to her and I'm like, I love you, but have we met? <laughs> I was like, I'm like, no, no, no. So uh, yeah, um, but should I just kind of go into how I got into TV? Well, I was gonna say, so after you graduated, how many jobs did you have before your current job at NBC Universal? Ooh, okay, well, um, yeah, I, I kind of might just go chronologically if that's okay yeah, and kind of yeah. just go from there. Because um, my, my career path has not been a streamlined process. It's, if you told me that I'd have to jump through a million hoops uh, and go through all of it, I wouldn't believe you. But um, So straight after university, I just kind of just uh, took a gap year, if you will, and kind of didn't want to do a real job yet. So I, I just you know, did a bunch of like hospitality jobs and went from there. And then um, I, just, and I made a bunch of short films. I made two, when I say a bunch, I made two short films. And, we're absolutely nowhere. You can't find them online. Don't try. <laughs> they will not be seen by anyone. Um, uh, and they weren't that, like, they were okay. You know, I, I watch them sometimes and, you know, I'm like, okay, I started somewhere. Uh, so what I did was, all right, um, short films aren't going to get me anywhere. I may as well just get a real job. So I just applied for some jobs and I got a job at a city council. It was very parks and recreation. It was, you know, it was very great. Um, but for me, it wasn't fulfilling. It was very much a nine to five and you know it's an important job but for me I wanted to be more creatively stimulated so what I did on the side of working that I ended up writing um, a web series uh, this is back in the day about 10 years ago now when YouTube was kind of coming up and a few web series were starting to get made because what I had done is I had made short films that got me nowhere and I thought what was the best way or what was a way for me to kind of get noticed so I wrote a web series, and I am um, just from producing the two shorts. I got my like I called in every favor I could, and for three months we shot on we I held castings. I got locations for three months. We shot on weekends, nights, um, 
took days off and just filmed. And we shot 21 episodes, uh, which turns into about an hour and 10 minutes worth of content. And um, yeah, and then we launched it in 2011, I want to say. Um, and that series was called Friends and Benefits. And what it was is, uh, um, so I'm an openly gay man. Um, I took the formula of sex in the city and I turned it to three gay best friends and a female best friend um, in Melbourne. And I gave the storyline of the protagonist getting over his first ever breakup. Uh, so something a bit more relatable to like universally. Um, so we launched it on YouTube um, and we got 100,000 hits in uh, one by the time it finished. Um, but the whole reason for that is I needed some kind of calling card. So at the city council, I was actually applying for media jobs left, right and center. No one was meeting me. No one even wanted to, you know, no one called me back. I then applied for internships just saying, okay, I need experience. Yeah. Couldn't get in the door. No one contacted me, nothing. So I was living in Melbourne while I was at the, uh, while I was at the, I was working, <laughs> sorry. And I'm sorry. While I was working, and then I quit my job, and then I moved to Sydney when I launched the web series. So, did you have something secured at that point? So, what I did, I needed the fear. I very much needed this. I, I am very lucky that I have a. I grew up with a family who supported me, and then yeah. when I moved out, I moved out of home when I was 18 in university, and I supported myself, and my parents gave me the knowledge of how to live, um, you know, and make sure I made enough money and, yeah. like, say, so, um, and the time I, city council, by the time I started working at the city council, I was getting a proper salary, so I knew how to kind of save and work. So, but for me, that lifestyle wasn't what I wanted. So, <clears throat> I moved to Sydney without a job, and I just worked temp. I did four, three, four days a week, and when I launched the web series, that became my calling card on my CV. So I then started applying for internships. So I first joined an internship uh, called the Australian Film Syndicate where they were just launching one small film. And I didn't get paid. I worked there for three months. Um, and then after that, I worked at two other internships. One was really, a really great um, youth organization called Vibewire in Sydney. And they support young creatives. And it's run by young creatives um, of all different types of multimedia content. So um, I was an intern there producing all the online content for them and with a team of other um, you know, interns. Um, so I did that. And then I worked um, for a channel on YouTube called Out Inside Out TV, um, which is just an LGBT channel in Sydney. I did that for a little bit also. So these are all unpaid, but in order for me to do that, I worked part-time on the side. So I did call center work, I did admin work, all in Sydney, because I've been doing that through university just to get me by, to make sure I could you know, sustain my lifestyle. And I did that again. So for me, um, my first internship, they were, for me just to get an internship in general, was yeah. incredibly hard. It wasn't, my dad knew someone, my, you know, or my uncle does this. Um, as first immigrant, um, to a, a first generation immigrants to Australia, my dad's an academic, my mom works in pharmaceuticals, yeah. you know, they had substantial jobs, but nothing in the creative sector. So there was no doors that could be opened from what I could use. So I had to create my own door. And you had to do a lot of free work to build up your CV to then get through the door. And then, yeah, so uh, I did the internships for about nine months. Um, and then what I happened was I applied for a job at a company called FACB, which is the first Australian completion guarantor. And um, I had no idea what a completion guarantor does, <laughs> was, um, but I applied for it and I got an interview and I ended up getting the job. And uh, my boss, who ended up hiring me, uh, months later actually said, Chris, you weren't the most experienced, you weren't you know, the one who 
we thought could do the job the best, but there was something in you, you know, you fit our culture, you just, you had that hunger you only wanted, but you're also, you know, like from what you can do, you're an entrepreneur and we saw that in you, you know? So they took a huge risk on me and that for me was the biggest, I think, um, point of change, because uh, that was the first, I'd been hustling for about, I say hustling, I'd been hustling for about a year and a half in, um, you know, interning for nine months, doing my web series, um, and not getting paid for any of it. So to be hired and someone actually telling me that like, we were taking this risk on you and we believe in you, was a huge deal for me. Um, so yeah, so I did, so for those who don't know what a completion guarantor is, um, so to finance a TV show, a documentary, or a film in Australia, um, a lot of the money comes from tax breaks. So the federal government, state government will give money, um, but you also get tax breaks from shooting in Australia. Um, in order to get those tax breaks, a lot of the time the investors or private investors um, and the government investors need to ensure that their production is not going to fall apart halfway through. So uh, they hire an external body called a completion guarantor to oversee everything from the green light process, from financials, to delivery. Um, and so we oversaw productions on big feature films, TV shows, and documentaries. Um, and I was just the admin assistant there, but it was a, a pretty small team. And I learned, every, I, I learned a lot from the almost two years I was there, basically from everything from how to finance to production and post-production and delivery. So th that year and a half actually set me up to learning so much about the industry. When I came into that job, not really knowing much. Like the internships you do, they're all great, but no one teaches you what television is like until you're in. Yeah. yeah. And you can't be, I mean, you're also um, shielded from a lot of stuff when you're an intern, yeah. right? Um, yeah, you're not in, in any of the big meetings, really. Well, I wasn't, anyway. It might be different for other people. Um, for me, when I was an intern, it was very much a lot of copies, a lot of printing. And don't get me wrong, when I was an assistant, I also did that for a long time, also. Um, yeah, and you're just kind of there as an extra pair of hands. But when you, when I started at the Completion Guarantor, um, I became a part of the family, even, um, because once I, w I was very, very fortunate that the people I worked with were incredibly nurturing and they'd been in the industry for 30 odd years, all of them. So they were very experienced. Um, so how did you, what was the transition from um, Australia to the UK? What, at what point? Was it four or five jobs well, after? Um, it's still, it's still a long journey from there. <laughs> so um, yeah. so uh, I moved to the UK in 2015 after I did a, um, finished up on Glitch. And um, I was talking to the uh, line producer about a, a possible job and I, I just said, I've, I've done a bit for a while, I'm gonna take a break from Australia and just, um, as an Australian, you can move to the UK and you know, it's pretty easy to get your visa over here. Yeah, so. I mean, in Canada, it's the same thing. It's a two years, you yeah. mobility. So, um, I decided, okay, let's go. Um, so um, I flew over to the UK and it took about six weeks. I was actually unemployed for a good six weeks. I was couch surfing for about two weeks and uh, yeah, it, it was a big push. That was the hardest move for me, moving countries, because I had a support system here. I had some friends who lived here, yeah. but it was not the same as moving from Melbourne to Sydney. Um, so I ended up getting a job at a media agency, and um, it was a communications, but they needed someone uh, to run, uh, they were launching their platform called, uh, basically the online platform called uh, Media Brands, MBTV, and they needed someone to just get content for them for startup. So I ended up production, uh, being a communications production manager, running the f just basically the first content that was being launched for them. 
So I did that for six months. So they sent me to Cannes. Um, I uh, basically interviewed a bunch of CEOs, uh, COOs, uh, just heads of departments, and um, getting each one of them to say one message, and then weekly they'd be released and information would be sent out towards the company via these videos. Um, so I helped launch that. Um, and then six months later, my, my contract finished up, and I had actually met with the head of production at NBC International. And how I knew NBC is Matchbox in Australia is owned by NBC. So all my producers in Matchbox, because I worked so hard for them and they knew who I was, and it's one of those things, I actually became friends with all the producers. They, they liked me, and, um, and I liked them. Um, they all reached out to NBC and said, can someone meet Chris? Can you meet Chris? Can you meet Chris? And it took a lot of people hassling NBC to, for me to open the door and um, meet the head of production. And I'd actually met her once before. She came to Australia and um, you know, we chatted a bit. So um, meeting her again was actually really nice. And it just so happened that her production coordinator was going on a holiday for four weeks. Um, so what I did, I was hired as the cover development coordinator, uh, production coordinator, I'm sorry. Um, so I accepted, I finished my role in media brands, jumped into NBC, and I was once again in production because that's all I knew. Um, two weeks into the cover, I get a call from the production line, and, um, and it's an American guy, and he says, hi, I've just arrived, I'm downstairs, can someone please help me out? I'm not sure, I went down and I helped him out, and I just said, I don't actually know what your deal is, what's going on? Um, and he said, hi, my name's Tom, um, I'm the new senior vice, pre I'm the senior vice president uh, from, of Scripted, and I come from LA, I've worked here for a few years, and I'm coming over to the UK to set up the UK division of Scripted. I was like, okay, great. So I just helped him out, I set him up, and he was, um, good to go. Um, at that time, I was actually offered my next job, and um, it was for a commercials company as a production manager. Um, but I actually went up to our head of production in NBC, and I said, what's the deal with the development guy, you know? And she said, he is, you know, overseeing all the UK development stuff. And I said, does he need a team? And she says, he needs a coordinator. Um, but Chris, like, what do you want to do? Because I see you as wanting to be a producer, you know? Um, and I just, I said to myself, you know what, like, I'm, I was a production manager, I'm going to, my next job is a production manager, I've been trying to get a development job for so long, and everyone said no, why not just put my hat in the ring? So I went up to Tom and I said, hey, um, you know, I've got another job lined up after this, but I would love to, you know, be on your team, um, just learn development. He says, yeah, yeah, let me come back to you. Um, two days later he comes back and says, hey, yeah, I'm happy to have you on my team. He didn't ask for my CV or anything. What actually happened was he spoke to the head of production. She said, I'm great, hire me. And then he spoke to an Australian producer who he knew that worked with me. And he spoke to another producer who had worked with me and apparently said, if you don't hire Chris, you're a fool. And hearing that was actually one of the nicest things I've ever heard. Um, but yeah, so um, he hired me as a contractor, um, as a development coordinator. And don't get me wrong, I took a pay cut. I took this step on the side um, and uh, you know, I basically put my head down and learned everything I could about development. And it could have, you know, I very much knew. Um, it wasn't a permanent role or anything. It was very much, it was hire as a contractor. I could be fired at any time. But I knew I was a production manager. I know so much about production. If this development, if I'm not creative enough, if I'm gonna fail, I had a fallback. I'd worked so hard in production. You know, and I didn't know when this opportunity would ever come up again, so I took it. Um, so yeah, and you know, uh, so three, uh, a few years later, um, I've been working with Tom, my boss, who is still my boss now, 
Um, and what happened there is I was given the opportunity to work on a lot of productions on the development side. So I worked on Hannah, as mentioned. Um, I was in the writer's room for that, uh, you know, taking notes. And then I was a script editor for The Long Song, which is a BBC series that came out last year, um, three-parter, produced by Heyday TV, which is David Heyman's production company. And then um, yeah, early last year, I was promoted to development manager, where now I very much work with my own slate of writers and work with the team to um, manage the UK development slate. And um, NBCU actually has, you know, um, first look deals, joint ventures with production companies. So I um, help the team and oversee a few of those production entities there. Um, so we're very busy and uh, that is how I'm here right now to this very room. Listening to that, um, I'll probably shorten it a bit for you listeners, <laughs> but listening to that, what I respect from it is that you were resilient enough to keep trying to find your way um, and knocking didn't work so you start to bang and then you start to kick the door down but in a polite way you know uh, you assume to get in you have to be aggressive you have to be um, mean-spirited to be a, to take a seat at the table um, in one way or regard but you kind of just justified that hard work and reputation and persistence is is a way in also so How i always say is um for me, I've never been given a seat at the table. I've had to work for it. And what I do when I meet people is I try to give them a reason for me, for them to say yes. Because there's always going to be reasons for people to say, no, you can't join the table. But if you give them reasons to say yes, and not even reasons, like, it's, for me, it's not about don't give them a reason to say no. It's to give them a reason to say yes. And I've managed to do that, like, again, going back, from the completion guarantor with my boss there, I gave her a reason to say yes. I was tenacious. I showed her that I could produce this. You know, um, I worked so hard at all my other companies that when my boss asked for a recommendation, I people said, "Do it, do it." I gave people, I gave all these people a reason to want to work with me, and it's now I take that into everything I do now. I work, I talk to write new writers, I talk to old, like old experienced writers. Not sorry, old. That's horrible. I talk to experienced writers. Um, I talk to. I'm a very awkward person. I don't know if this is coming out on radio. <laughs> Um, I talk to, you know, producers, and it's the sense of what I do is development now is create stories and collaborate with people to try to elevate, like, ideas into shows that people will watch. And a lot of, I'm not going to lie, a lot of people can do that, but I give the writer a reason to want to work with me. I try to connect with them. I try to show them that working with me, they'll be in safe hands, or I'll give them a perspective that they didn't know about. Yeah. For me, I, I like to think of it as kind of as my currency, as again, I'm not invited to the table, so I kind of have to pay to get to the table, if you want to use that analogy. Yeah. What is my currency? And you know, it's taken a long time for me to kind of figure that out, but I, I know I have an eclectic, like a lot of skills that I'm kind of, you know, something's working for me, and by honing into certain parts of what I, find can connect me with people like storytelling mm -hmm. I find that gives people a reason to say yes and invite me to the table and hopefully I'll keep getting invited to different tables and um, uh, whilst I'm doing that I want to also invite other people to the table that who wouldn't normally get invited I mean you said, when you said about currency I always think of the Amy uh, Poehler book yes please and how she said her currency is uh, kindness um, and I've 
I've lived by that. Um, I know it's a little woo-woo for some people. Uh, yeah, I honestly think, just to jump off that, I honestly think kindness is a very like powerful currency because I'm not surprised by, I constantly see a lot of people, to be kind is an active choice. I'm going to say that. You can walk past someone and accidentally bump into them and not say anything. That's the easy way to do it. But to actively turn around and say, I'm, I'm very sorry, or you know, even hold a door for someone, that's an active choice. The easiest thing to do is just not do anything. So that's, that's very much a currency because you are actively like making the world a little bit nicer. I mean, I, I, I try. <laughs> we got very Disney just then, but you know, the birds will start singing and all. Oh yeah, what happens? <laughs> no, you, you kind of touched about uh, on being in the writer's room, and I, I want to uh, paint a picture for storytellers um, and listeners to this uh, interview. Um, when you sit down, let's say you leave that writer's room and someone gives you a piece of work or script, um, and when you sit down and read and experience that script or story, what are you hoping to gain? For me, uh, one of my producers sat me down years ago and just said to me, Chris, people watch TV just for to be entertained, yeah? But they also want to feel. They want to laugh. They want to cry. They want to be scared of horror, you know? Um, so when I, and I've taken that. I've taken that to everything I do. So when I read something, first and foremost, I want to be, I want to escape into it. I want to be able to just really be able to dive into the story, whatever it may be, or the characters. But I also want to feel. I want to be able to let pop, something to pop that will affect me in a way that I didn't expect. Yeah. And again, what like for me, what takes a good script to a great script is when it gives me something I didn't know I wanted. So it gives me new, its own currency. You know, it surprises me. And, you know, even in a writer's room, you kind of take the time to block out the main beats and figure out what's going to happen. But when you see it on the page and you see it come to life, you know, and like there are some scripts I read and I'm bawling in tears and I just can't turn the page. And, you know, when that happens, that's something that I remember. Yeah. Um, and again, it goes with what I said at the start, storytelling is tapped, but this time storytelling is tapped into emotion. You remember the stories, but you remember how you feel when you read it, and it stays with you, so for me. Yeah, I mean, it's great that you said that it's the feeling that you get, and you know, it's very emotive in a way. Why do you think people get it wrong? Like, how do you think storytellers get it wrong then? When you read something that's not emotive, that doesn't cause you to react um, <laughs> by sobbing or laughing, how do they get it wrong? In your opinion. For me, there's, there's no, like, this is a tricky one. So everyone has a different style of writing first and foremost. There is no, this is how you have to write. What's, it's not that it's wrong. It's that a reader doesn't feel the same as how the writer is writing it. And a lot of the time, writing is very, very isolating. A lot of the time, a writer will just write in a room by themselves and no one will ever read their work. So sometimes a writer might, and... Just and this is not the case for everyone. This is just you know an example. Sometime a writer might just write a scene and think this is brilliant, brilliant, and then someone else will read it and think no, this is not at all coming across. Um, and it could be many reasons. It could be the sense that at the time the writer was writing it, they were going through something that they thought everyone could relate to, but really it was something so insular that only they got. Um, the thing about writing is, especially with scripts. Once it gets to a point where it's going to be, you know, you're trying to take it out to green light, there are going to be many, many people reading this. Not 
people who understand you as a person, as a writer. So in order for them to get it, you need to, uh, the writer, like why you might be, I don't want to say wrong because that's just not how I would describe it. Why it wouldn't be as effective as... as yeah, let's another, say not as effective. Yeah, yeah, not as effective as... Yeah, know, not as effective as, you know, a very seasoned writer is because, um, I, I can't remember who said it, but uh, someone famous has recently said, and I'm, it's not me, so this is not my quote, but it's, if it's not in the script, it doesn't exist. And it's the sense of, you might get that this character is, oh, you know, really... Power, like hard hitting or really dramatic but if it doesn't read like that on the page no one's going to get it and no one's going to spend that 10 minutes with you explaining for you to explain to them that no this character lost his you know dog and that's why he's so broken and that's why no one's going to so like no one's going to understand that unless it's somehow on the page effectively written so people get within that scene what's happening mm-hmm. so that's kind of what I would say um, so just to kind of maybe tailor what you said, for it to be reason why people aren't getting, uh, making an effective uh, story uh, is because that they have a disconnect of translating the backstory uh, of a character or a story to paper, or if they do do it, they need that 10 minutes to explain what their intentions are on the paper. Every, I'm going to say this. Everyone has a different writing style, and that is just an example of something that might not come across. Someone else might write something and say, and I just might not get it, like just their expression. There's a million reasons why scripts don't translate to readers, you know, and um, someone just more universal, you know. So my suggestion, if we're going to kind of just take that question, is ask people to read your stuff and ask for, if you're a storyteller, ask people to read it and ask people who you know and trust will give you constructive feedback. A lot of people will read things and just say it's crap, but that's not constructive. Yeah. Constructive feedback is, is, hey, I didn't understand this and this is just like, this is just a reason why I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And don't take it personally. Try not to take it personally. But yeah. the biggest thing is, um, I've tried to write. I very much know I'm not a writer. Yeah. Okay, um, and I a lot of my job is giving notes and feedback. It's very hard not to take things personally when you've spent hours of your time writing something. It is your bit. Yeah, it's you know. So, I would suggest if if you if you want to like, not everyone needs to get other people to read it because some people are just amazingly great. I'm yeah. gonna be very honest. I've read people's first drafts. I'm like. How do you write? How do you do that? I'm very impressed by that. Um, again, I'm not a writer though, so uh, if you do feel that you know you've sent it to people and just not getting it, take a step back and ask a few people you trust or some people you respect um, to read something and then get constructive feedback. And be I'm just gonna also be honest about this. Try to be humble about it because someone's time to read what and your hour script and I can really only talk about TV at the moment because that's what I do. Um, that's a lot of time for them, you know, and for them to put that much work in, they're, you're actually, they're actually taking time to help you. So that's an active choice for them to help develop you. So, you know, but in order, you never know unless you ask. And so a lot of people will be happy to help you. Um, and a lot of people will try their best to construct. And, you know, pick and choose, to, you know, at the end of the day, you're the writer. So you have to play around with the story a million times before you choose what scenario, what will actually happen and end up on the page. No one else is going to tell you, no, specifically, you need to write this line. And if they do, 
<laughs> that's kind of like a bit different. That's a bit different. Um, does that? Yeah, no, it does. It, it also just kind of refers back to one of our newsletters that I put out with Seth Godin saying, you know, waiting to be a hit. And a lot of that has to do with receiving and uh, accepting criticism in a way that's, uh, as you said, humbling and um, redirecting or pivoting what you thought was a good idea to what is translating into a good idea. So it, it does echo that. I, I would love to know, as a reader of scripts, how do you objectively, and this is hard with anything, judge a story without putting your personal tastes mood and unconscious bias in the process. Can you? Can you do it? I don't think anyone honestly can. I think I've read things that I just didn't get, but I've taken a step back and I've had to ask myself, like, does this work if I was not who I am? You know, if I was of a different ethnicity, if I wasn't gay, you know, would I understand this and would I appreciate it? Yeah. And for me, this, you know, universal stories that you can just, you know, loss a lot of people everyone deals with loss okay love you know like romantic comedies do really well if you can find something that connects then yeah that that's universal but i don't ever th i think reading in general is incredibly subjective you will always have haters you will always have fans so it, it very much is the sense of not everyone is going to get what you do if for a writer this is this is the kind of what i'll say is um but those who do understand what you do and can help you get to where you want, they're the ones who should really, you should really be paying attention to, not the ones who just don't understand you and say, no, that's crap. Um, if they, again, if they can give you constructive feedback, that's to take you to, uh, but if they see what you're trying to do, then you know, that's, that's helpful. But if they just don't completely get it, there's, from, there's very little point unless there is some reason like you really want to go back to uh, um, kind of that avenue, yeah. to pursue that avenue. Like, Try, try different methodologies, I would say. The thing about storytelling, working in TV, working in development, it's a long game. I've been in TV nine years now, and you know, I'm still fighting battles. I'm still trying to you know, work, you know, do amazing things. Um, and I'm still learning every day. Like Every day I go in and I meet someone new, I take from that. For me, it's, I know what I'm, there's a lot that I can focus on that will, you know, I can improve on and that I can get work. There's, for me, no reason to go to, I hate, like, uh, this person doesn't get what I do or um, this project's not going anywhere or this, I just don't get that script. For me, I don't, you know, it's picking and choosing and knowing your audience. Yeah. This is just how I work, uh, I function. A lot of people don't. Um, I don't want to drag too much. I, I know there's more things I want to ask you, but let's just finish it off by asking you this. When you look back at your career and the things you've developed and the things you were a part of, um, you talked about your currency in life. What do you feel most proud of and what do you feel, hope you'll be remembered for? Ooh, uh, I don't actually know what I feel most proud of, to be honest. I, I'm proud of a lot of things. I'm proud of my web series. Uh, even though I watch it sometimes, I'm like, hmm, could have done better. Um, I'm proud of just getting in the industry in the first place. It was, some, it was a pipe dream for me. Like, I, I never thought I could. Like, for me right now, it's a job I love. And there are, I, I know, I, I, I very much know this. I, you know, I haven't had an easy life, but I've had a quite stable, privileged life. And where I am now, I am 
one of the few privileged people to say I love what I do and to be where I am. And don't get me wrong, it was a lot of hard work. But so I would just be proud of just being able to see the results of all my hard work is what I'd be proud of. And um, what I want to be remembered for is, it's going to sound really stupid, but I think for me, I'm such an emotive person. It's how I've made people who I've worked with or who remember me feel. And it doesn't need to be that, oh my God, I get, you know, you know, we had the best night or anything like that. But, you know, anything from even people who worked with me, if we're going to be how we remember, people, you know, like, we remember Chris for his great energy or, you know, just taking the time to actively be nice because that's a choice. Um, well, uh, again, thank you. You did take the time. You did not have to respond on LinkedIn and come out to a weird back alley shortage office. <laughs> uh, so I want to say thank you and we're really going to take this knowledge and sink in our teeth on how we can develop and make a product that helps storytellers uh, get in front of people like you. So thank you. I really appreciate that, Chris. I really do. And uh, bye, listeners. I don't know who I'm sitting down with next, but uh, it's been really fun talking to Chris. So see ya.